it was five solid years after film school before I made a penny in the business. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. It does no service to creating value for people where I came from if I won't say where I came from. And so nobody thought any thought this movie was going to work, and it did. One of my greatest struggles as a journalist is that I'm an emotional person and I'm a sensitive person. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I don't know if you're driving in your car, riding on the subway, walking on the street. Either way, we know there are tons of podcasts out there, so you being here means the world to us. Really appreciate it. If you're not already subscribed on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen, I hope you'll consider it so you get these episodes when we release them every Friday. There's a ton more you can do if you want to help us out. None of it costs you money, just a few minutes, maybe a little shame and embarrassment, like this review from our fan of the week. Great podcast, exclamation point, five stars, Tara Dowd, thank you. I really enjoy listening to 10,000 No's with Matthew Del Negro. Matt's genuine interest in his guests' stories is inspiring. With every episode, I feel as if I'm sitting with a group of my friends discussing the joys and tribulations of life. That's cool. Thank you, Tara Dowd. Okay, stick around at the end to find out how you can help us spread the word if you dig this, but for now, let's get to it. My guest today is Lawrence Trilling, the directing producer and showrunner of the critically acclaimed Amazon original series Goliath, starring Billy Bob Thornton. Prior to Goliath, Lawrence was a major creative force on many hit shows, including Parenthood, Scrubs, and Alias, as well as the upcoming Condor for AT&T. Prior to that, he was delivering pizzas and teaching English as a second language. Can't wait for you to hear us talk shop and discover why he's known as one of the greatest collaborators in TV today. Lawrence Chilling. I'm amazed that you're even here right now because I know leading up to Goliath, I would imagine you're working. Are you still working around the clock? Or are you kind of done and it's now like been shipped off to all over the world? And Well, being... season two is finished. So it's going to come out June 15th. So we, I literally just finished... The last touches on, you know, the sound mixing and things like that about two weeks ago. And then now we're two weeks into the writer's room for season three. Oh, you are? You're already? Yeah. Oh, okay. And is everything still being done where I know the last time I was there at the studio, you guys were like shipping it off to like everybody to do the voices for around the world? Yeah, I really, really? want to know. I want to hear Mandarin Billy Bob Thornton. For that show. <laughs> but, no, yeah, they they have a very specific and elaborate, you know, delivery process because it's such an international product on Amazon. Yeah. So we have to get the shows done months in advance. Okay. Um, so, all right, well, let, let's, I guess I'll, we'll take it back to something I may or may not have known about you. And then maybe I forgot it, but Wayne, New Jersey, as I looked you up, that's yes. where you were born. But I always think of you as an LA guy because I remember a conversation we had years ago. I don't remember, I don't know, remember the context, but somehow you being, I thought, second or third generation LA. And I remember saying, you seem so like, you seem so grounded. And I, I just assumed you were, I didn't think you were from here and you went to Samo High and. Yeah, well, I'm essentially from here, but I was technically born in Wayne, New Jersey. I, my parents and even my, some of my grandparents grew up in LA, but I, 
my dad had a job in New Jersey and that's where I was born. I lived there for three years, but I grew up in Santa Monica. But it's funny because people always say to me, you seem like you're from the East Coast, but that's just code word for you. You seem like a Jew. <laughs> is, that, is that? See, I don't I think, think of so. it as that way. I always think of, I I hate to say that. It's it's what I probably said to you that you seem like you're East Coast. I meant it in like, I have this, you know, terrible cliche. I don't think it anymore, but I think when I got here, I was like LA. I had, there, there's a stereotype when you come from the East. Oh, for sure. That you and think I mean, everybody's in the film business and you think everybody's kind of, it's, it's, not correct, but it's like this, everybody's shallow and everybody's into flash and all of that. And that's kind of where I. Right. Well, also, I mean, I grew up in Santa Monica, which was not really the Santa Monica that it is today. It was a much more working class, middle class, like Dogtown Z-Boys. If you ever saw that documentary, that was much more the vibe of it, where it was like a lot of sort of blonde skateboarder surfer kids. So it didn't have like a Hollywood reputation back then. It had much more of a, a beachy reputation. And, yeah. you know, Sean Penn went to Samuel High and he learned his Spicoli character at my high school. So Oh, really? So that's really like the world that I grew up in. So I was very outside of that. So I did feel much more of an affinity to the East Coast just by nature of being a not surfer kid among surfer kids. And yeah. and uh, the, my little group of friends that I did find, my little tribe, we, we were more like East Coast kids. And then when I went back again to for college to New York, I I sort of felt like those were more my people. Yeah. So you're you're you were not I inaccurate. Was, I was, However, it also has a Jew edge to it, that that observation. I that's so funny because <laughs> I, I don't I don't think of it I don't know I have never put that together. Even but. the casting cliches sometimes are like we're looking for an urban type means you want a black guy. Yeah. Looking for a New York type means you want a Jewish guy. <laughs> See maybe that, I always think it's an Italian guy. <laughs> well, like, maybe that's that why too, I'm not yeah. getting cast in that. <laughs> Um, wait, so what was your dad doing in, um, in Wayne? Was he in this, is he in this business? No, not at all. My father was at that time, a pharmaceutical salesman at Huffman LaRoche. And, uh, then he came out here, uh, got a job as a stockbroker and he worked in that industry. And, um, really I didn't, you know, even though I grew up in LA, I had a pretty indirect, uh, association with Hollywood and the movie business, but I got lucky in that. I met Matt Reeves early on, and he was making Super 8 films in middle school, and he cast me to act in one of them, and then we wound up writing a film together, and then we made films together. We were in film festivals with J.J. Abrams, and we, this whole little core of guys that wound up working in the business later on, came together, and both J.J. and Matt's fathers were in the business. So um, they were kind of second-generation kids in the business who had their own ambitions and their own cameras, and I kind of jumped on the train of their creativity. How old were you when that happened? Uh, eighth grade. Eighth grade. Eighth grade. Um, I made a film with Matt Reeves called The African Star, in which I play the curator of a museum who engineers an inside job theft of a giant diamond. And it's really funny to watch all of these 14-year-olds. We're all playing adults very seriously, very serious about it. You know, I, I have a confrontation with a mob boss and I get, you know, it's really unintentionally hilarious. We actually were, had like a flair for self, uh, public, you know, publicizing ourselves. And we called at that time the film critic of the Santa Monica Evening Outlook. And he, <laughs> he came to Matt's house and watched the film and wrote a review, which was kind, but it was, you know, he said, you know... It, it's unintentionally funny at times, I don't know, but the, I think these kids are going places type of thing. So yeah. Matt and I, um, you know, got that. And then there was at that time public access television. So we got our film. And then the next film we made also 
we got that aired on local public access television. When you were in eighth grade, eighth and ninth grade, yeah, because we made wow. a couple, we made two or three films together in junior high school. So, but but JJ was, I, I he went to he was in the Palisades. So Matt Reeves and I were at Samo High, and JJ was at Pally. But we met him when he was in ninth grade at yeah Paul Revere Junior High School because he had made a film. And we had made a film, and our films were together in this teen film festival. Okay. And we all became friends. Okay, because uh, the story I know of him is through Jen Todd, who's actually going to come on here uh, at some point soon. Um, and JJ was, I thought he went to her school, but maybe not. But I, I do know that he was a lot younger, and he, he was like 14, and he scored a movie that she did. Like she said, he was just a genius. Like with, is he's a musician? Yeah, he does he, everything. I mean, he would, he did, yeah, he's a musician. He's an artist. You know, he paints. He would design his own sets. He did his own special effects makeup. The film that he made in ninth grade or was a ripoff of um, Altered States, you know, the William Hurt movie. Yeah. And so he did all this amazing, like, visual effects work and special effects makeup in the Super 8 film that was... You know, he and Matt both are like freakishly talented and born to do this and have only ever wanted to do this. So yeah. I was really lucky to just get a little bit of their fairy dust sprinkled on me. Well, yeah, they're, you're being very humble as as people will know. And as anytime your name is brought up and I sing your praises, everybody agrees. I mean, everybody that has worked with you is like, I just want to work with Larry and whatever he's doing next. That's okay. really that's a that's a reputation. So you're being humble, um, but I do know that story of JJ being this wonderkin who who kind of um, I I didn't I don't know if I realized that his dad was in the business as well. His dad uh, his dad was a very prolific uh, producer, mostly television. He kind of pioneered the movie of the week, and he worked at Hearst Television and was you know produced you know tens if not hundreds of of television movies. It was like a really like, you know, that the business of movie of the week was really something that you know, he, whether he invented it or just, you know, evolved it. He was one of those people that was one of the most prolific producers of television movies in the 70s and 80s and 90s. OK, I didn't, I didn't realize that. So before that, though, did you have did you know you were going to be a storyteller of, of any sort or no? It was a kind of like out of nowhere. You met these guys. You started kind of dabbling with it and then it just. You realize you were hooked. I always had a really um, passionate, you know, zeal to tell stories, but I didn't think about it necessarily in professional terms. You know, I I was always writing short stories and bad poetry, and and <laughs> um, I even started to write a novel called Lost in Solvang, which is about because it's impossible to get lost in Solvang, so small, but it was about a guy, this journalist who uncovers a cult in Solvang. Wait, when is, you were how old is I don't this? know, like fifth or sixth grade. So Really? So I always wanted to be creative, but um, I didn't think of it necessarily in career terms. You know, um, I wanted to be in the NBA. That quickly became clear to me. It wasn't going to happen. Oh, just, um, just for the record, <laughs> folks, he is a good hoops player. Yeah, I, not I've quite played. NBA level, not even quite high school varsity level, only high school junior varsity level. Um, but I, um, it was, I think really not, it was then even when I started, I made a few Super 8 films with my cousin, even before I met Matt and JJ, and I just loved the process. And I love, and then once I started doing that, I saw that and I found out that people could do that for a living. That would, that the collaboration of that and the joy of working with other people in that way creatively was, I just never found anything uh, to beat it. But, you know, and that's true today, too. I just never found anything I like to do as much as that. Yeah. Well, that's what you're saying, the collaboration and the joy. That's the thing about you that everybody 
remarks about. Um, actually, I saw Cami Patton and, and Jenny Lair today. I went in for them for something, and we were talking My about favorite you. Casting directors, yeah, they're awesome. And I and uh, they were asking me about my experience on Goliath, and I brought you up and just said how collaborative you are. And every department says the same thing about you. That's that's kind of, I think, of your defining characteristic is is how open you are to the people you bring in to work for you. You really let them do their thing. And everybody feels there, there was such a freedom on that set of people feeling like, they were they were designing whatever department they were in. They were putting their stamp on it. And you kind of, you, I, I don't know, is that something that you think, did you learn that from your parents? Is that just kind of, uh, do you have siblings, by the way? Yeah. I do. I have a sister who's a costume designer and she actually works at Fox Sports and is very successful. She dresses all the athletes that appear on Fox Sports and she dresses Kobe Bryant and Michael Strahan, and so she specializes in in big dudes. Yeah, but and, she's a, but she's a she's a costume designer. Well, but does she is that characteristic something that runs in your family? Kind of this you you have a, I think a, a lack of an ego in a great way. You're very much in control of the show, and yet it it's very easy. It, it's it's easy to be around you and to work for you. Is that something that you think was? handed down from your parents Thank or you. just you I learned? think so. I mean, well, I mean, I would say that I got a good combination from my parents and that my father was very hardworking and ambitious and that my mother was very, um, is like an empath and really connects with people. And she really is able to get people to be not in a manipulative way, but just in an honestly curious way, people are vulnerable with her and they lean on her and tell her things. And she is able to connect with people very deeply and has a facility socially. And I think I may have gotten some of that from her and then from my dad, a work ethic. Um, but in terms of collaborating creatively, I think that was just a natural instinct. I do have an ego you know, I care about uh, doing great work and I want the great work to reflect well on me, you know, so of yeah. course, like anybody. Um, but I think I'm definitely in the best idea wins business, but I'd also like to be the one who is the filter yeah. through which, through which the, idea is, the ideas passes. are going. So that's yeah. the ego too, which is like, well, I yeah. still get to decide. So I do, I have to admit, love that I get to be the one to decide. Yeah. But that said, I'm happy to win the idea is not mine and give credit for it. And just in the way that I feel the the biggest job of a director is casting and that's not only with actors that's casting your crew as well finding people that um that have a shared sensibility enough so that when they're going to bring you things to surprise you and delight you with their ideas whether it's a costume designer production designer the editor the composer you know you're working from a place of a shared sensibility and it's my job to convey the mission that we're about to undertake and i know you love and gave me the Sidney Lumet book, Making Movies, but he says in that book, you know, your job is to make sure that everybody's making the same movie. So yeah. once I am able to impart to everyone, this is the movie in term, in whatever those terms are, as simple as possible, then it, then there's this beautiful thing that happens where, you know, you I see pictures of you from a wardrobe fitting and uh, that Lindy, our costume designer, brought, and I thought, oh, that's what that scene's going to be about, you know? And I didn't realize it until I saw how she thought you should be dressed in that scene. Yeah. You know, so 
to me, that's a delight. It only reflects well on me to empower all these talented people to do their best job. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, I mean, you sum it up. That's the way I, I think of it. It's like you, I remember watching, I binged the first season because I had not seen it. I think I saw enough of it to get the flavor before I went in for the audition. And then once I got it, I binged the, that season. And every time, like there were the ones that you directed, I don't know how many you directed in the first I directed season. Four out of the eight. Four out of the eight. But they're like music. I, that's, I wanted to ask you about music's role in your life because I would watch the episodes that you did. And I'm like, oh, this is an incredible song. It's like a bluesy song as Billy Bob's like, you know, on the beach. And, and you just, your episodes popped. So that's the other thing that comes up is everybody's like, Larry's great to work for and he's good. It's usually, it seems like sometimes there's one or the other, you know, it's like, yeah, the, well, the I person's think, you know, talented or they're a pain in the ass to work for or, or vice versa. Well, I've seen, you know, it's interesting because most directors don't really get to watch other directors work. So they work a little, you know, in isolation, obviously there's only, you know, unless you're a brother team or a brother and sister team of directors, you're, you're alone out there. Actors have castmates, you know. And they've worked. They work with all kinds of directors, and everybody in the crew sees different directors. So directors don't necessarily have a, a lot of uh, to model off of in terms of watching other people direct. But I've been lucky enough as a producing director on Goliath and Parenthood and other shows uh, to not only get to direct a bunch, but also to support and watch other directors work and see what they do well and see how they come up short sometimes. But this is a long way around of talking about that idea of being nice and easy to work with. There's a downside of that. There's the nice director who really just wants to make everybody happy, meaning let's make our day. Let's get home on but time. But not ruffle Let's feathers. not ruffle any feathers. If that actor's in a bad mood, let's not push him too much. If that actor's resisting, let's not say the thing that's going to piss him off. That's a, that's nice, but not in the service of the show. So, I, I, you know, there's weak directors who are nice. Mm-hmm. And then there's asshole directors who are very good. But, you know, you, I think there's a way to be kind but still be really firm and be... You know, and hopefully through uh, the force of your own enthusiasm and your point of view, you get people on board. Yeah. And, but people do it all kinds of ways. I've seen people bully other people or um, alienate, or, manipulate. Yeah. You know, I guess you can make the argument that if it turns out well, then it's fine. For me, anyway, I don't know how to do that. I just think that, to me, the process and the product have to kind of go work together. Yeah. And um, so... That's uh, my approach is always to be, you know, to push for when it's not good enough, you know, you don't walk away, but you try to get people on board with enthusiasm as opposed to criticism. Well, also, it feels like instincts play a big role in the way you work. I mean, in terms of like even how the the story felt like it it changed as we went along a little bit and just different scenes, I'd kind of show up thinking, you know, Thinking something, it seemed to grow in the moment just with instincts of what's happening right there. And I, I know I felt for myself as an actor, if I brought something to the table, you would say, okay, go with it. And, you know, wouldn't you pretty much give free reign and you would pull me back if, if you felt that that was necessary. But you kind of went where where people were taking you within knowing what you wanted out of the scene, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, I always go in with, you know, I do a lot of preparation and I'll always have an idea and a plan, you know, for any given scene, both in terms of what I think we should do with the camera and what my sense of the tone is and what performances might look like. But I tend to not um, 
push that uh, too much at all at the top because a you might get there on your own same place I was imagining and then you earned it yourself and it was yours or you did something different than I thought which was cool and I wouldn't have thought of it and if I told you what I thought up front we never would have seen that right or it's not working but then we have somewhere to go from and I, you're right that I do feel very I mean from a place of preparation then I become very instinctive and what to me like the whole thing is whatever else happened preparations expectations the weather's not right you're in a rush you know whatever's happening once you say action between action and cut it's like a very sacred space and your full attention goes into that and i it's something you strive for in every other part of your life you know to be in the moment and but for that i'm really good at being in the moment and being able to feel be inside of what you guys are doing and feel and i just go with a feeling like if i'm completely into it and i'm the first observer the first audience member of the scene and it's moving me and it's it's taking me somewhere then sometimes it's just like yes more of that or some but if something bumps me off the ride then cut we go and talk and i'll say you know this mo- it all and that all generates you know then you you know you kind of bring some your thoughts to something that was initially just a feeling like hmm that didn't quite land you right. know and you know i think working with you is great in that way because you work that way too and you'll have you'll say to me like how do you what do you think of this how do you how should how did you think this scene was and sometimes i might give you a few little ideas, but mostly I want to just see what you thought of it. Yeah. And then we kind of shape it together over the takes. But for sure, I've seen you do things and then give me an idea like, oh, now we can go more in this direction. You know, right, right. I remember we did that scene. You know, it's one of my favorite scenes we did in this last season without being a spoiler. But for people who are going to watch Goliath season two, your relationship with Dominic Famusa's character, Keith Roman, is a beautiful thing. And it's about two it's so what happens when two best friends get wrapped up in ambition and betrayal. and But the scene, the you know, the sort of big scene between the two of you, you know, it, it, it suggested a certain kind of way of being played, uh, you know, more aggressively or something. But, but then really there was this other layer of heartbreak behind it. And I think that we found something so emotional. I mean, I really like, I cried on the set and I cried when I saw it cut together. The, the, uh, and without, I don't want to give anything, but Lancaster or Backyard, which, which uh, Lancaster. Lancaster. Although yeah. they're both fantastic. Yeah. Scenes. Yeah. But I mean, cause I remember the Backyard thing go, we, there was one that actually wasn't used. I don't think, cause when I had seen some of the stuff, it, I don't know if it was used, but there was one where it went a really different direction kind of than we, it was like, uh, you know, like, a, I, don't, I feel like we a should talk about Yeah. But there were, anyway, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, that was probably the best shot scene I've ever, like, you showed me that that frame from that scene. And I was like, this this is probably the best I've ever been shot in my life. I love this. Yeah, you got some pretty heroic the com- compositions holding it was a gun. Cool. And, you know what? It was, uh, it was like the perfect marriage of what was going on dramatically and what was going on visually, you know, just in terms of this feeling of, isolation and a big landscape yeah. and these two friends mano a mano confronting the betrayal between them and the love they have for each other and yeah it was really you know, it was it was, great but i mean it's just the process of working with you was very i felt we're very much both coming at it creatively kind of the same similar similar way like we have ideas of, yeah but we're not too beholden to them and we both want to hear from each other and then when it's happening you're available to what to what whatever the is being suggested, and yeah, what, yeah. Your, what your scene mate is doing, and yeah. all that. Oh, you know? thank you. That's very high compliment. I'm, I thank you. Um, 
Uh, so so let me let me take you back a little bit just because uh, I'm going to try to find some chinks in your armor because it's mm-hmm. ten thousand no's. So I gotta <laughs> I gotta find somewhere oh, where, you, me. where you uh, you know take you back to when you didn't feel. Uh, so great. Like what were some of the dips, I guess that's what I'm interested in is like, you know, for people that are listening, um, I can kind of geek out on all the filmmaking stuff, but then I'm just thinking you have obviously done very well. I mean, you just ran season two of Goliath parenthood that I got to work with you on a Mm -hmm. little bit. Um, was an amazing show. So real and grounded. And then also, also had humor and just felt raw. Um, you, you, you're prolific. I mean, you, you look you up on IMDb, you're, you've done so much. What were, you know, after those kind of eighth and ninth grade, did you go through any periods where you're like, well, you know, Matt and JJ are great, but I'm terrible. I'm not going to do it. Or did you oh, always feel yeah. pretty confident? Well, I mean, no, I mean, I went to college, then I went to film school at UCLA and then I made a film. But you there. went undergrad at NYU, right? I went undergrad Columbia. Or Columbia, sorry. sorry. I went undergrad at Columbia. Then I went to and then I went to then I went to film school at UCLA and got my MFA. So I made a film there that got a little bit of attention, you know, enough to get uh, you know a, a screening at the DGA and a couple of meetings. But was really, that the dinner and driving that you told no, me about? No, that is an yet. independent feature that I made a few years oh, later. Okay, so this is just my student film. Got it. And I was like ready to rock. Here I go, world. And, you know, of course, that did happen for Matt and JJ. Matt made a student film and immediately got, some, you know, wrote a script and directed The Pallbearer at Miramax. And JJ had sold three or four screenplays right out of college and then sold Regarding Henry. I mean, he was just like lightning. Yeah. So that, those two guys were doing great. And I was delivering pizzas. So I, <laughs> you know, I, I was working at Louisa's Pizza in Brentwood and I was also teaching English as a second language. And there were, it was five solid years after film school before I made a penny in the business. So very frustrating times. And, you know, two particular moments I remember. One was when I was delivering pizzas and I delivered to um, a high school friend, Dean Kane, who had just been cast as Superman. Oh, and, he, and bringing a pizza to his door was a little bit humiliating, although he was very kind about it. And then another time I came home from pizza delivery, turned on the TV and watched um, one of my college classmates holding an Emmy in his hand that he had just won, who's a year younger than I am. So he was writing for the Ben Stiller show. And so so there were a whole bunch of, you know, uh, humbling times. And I had, you know, a lot of my friends that I went to college with were well on their way in their careers and making money. I had a girlfriend who became my wife and I, I was making no money, you know, and yeah. even when we got married, I was still teaching and delivering pizzas. And so it, it was pretty harrowing several years. And I always had, how was your family with it? Your, your parents, were they always they were amazing? I have to yeah. say, you know, like my dad always said, you know, you have to give it five years after graduate school before you even consider a backup plan, which was really cool. Yeah. Cause I think he had really hoped, you know, when I was younger that I would, go into his business and he would teach me and I would be, we would, you know, be stockbrokers together. That was just never going to be my thing. And he got that and totally supported my path. And, you know, even my wife's parents, you know, I remember when I was going to get engaged and I said, you know, I would like your blessing. And my father-in-law said, well, you know, normally a person has a profession, but uh, we believe you'll have one too. I mean, they were all really cool about it. And in the back of my head, I thought, um, 
I'll go to law school. I'll give myself five years, then I'll go to law school. And it was literally like five years. And then I, I, um, I wrote a, I was writing that whole time. I finally wrote a screenplay that I sold. And then I wrote another screenplay that I rose, raised money and made this independent feature that you were asking about dinner and driving. That had a little life festival circuit, sold it to HBO, sold it to Lifetime. But most importantly, it became a calling card and I got an agent and then started to get work. And you were roughly 30-ish? I was or not quite? 30, 31. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was, um, but I mean, I really was, you know, even though I, you know, really enjoyed actually teaching English as a second language and I didn't even mind delivering pizza because I got to read books in the back of the pizza shop and listen to yeah. Terry Gross on fresh air while I was driving around. Um, but there was a time when I was like, dude, this is not cool. I'm married. <laughs> I think, you know, even when I had, I think I even had my son by that, you know, cause the truth is actually after I made this film and sold a script, I still had to go back to teaching English. So I couldn't string enough work together. You know how it is. Like yeah. you get a break. Well, that's that happened to me. You're still doing other shit. No, that, bills. I, that was the same deal. I mean, <clears throat> I, I was, I had like the New York version of that. I was bartending in New York and I remember being, I don't know, I think it was like 28 and these guys from BC, a bunch of people worked down on Wall Street and they'd come into the bar as a Midtown bar. And I remember just like, you know, two guys I was, you know, acquaintances with, I wasn't really tight with. And everybody's making money. This is late 90s. Everybody's making money. And I'm like, you know pouring them Guinness uh-huh. and just, and I remember going like, what am I doing? Like, am I, am I delusional? What am I doing? And then got Sopranos shortly thereafter and felt like, oh, okay, you know, all right, I'm, I'm here. And I came out to LA and I thought like, oh, you know, this is like, where's my show? And then went back with my tail between my legs and then was bartending again, mm. you know? And it was, but it was like, that's, that was a really weird time for me. Yeah. Because it went from being totally obscure, you know, where people don't even know you're an actor, and then to being like on the subway and people going like, "Oh, you're Tony's boy," you know, and then back to bartending. Right, that's hard. And people are like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know. I I remember that I had made my film Dinner and Driving, and we got into this film festival, and um, you know, there was like a Q and A after a screening that had gone really well, and they were like, you know, and the, it was semi Parts of the movie were semi autobiographical, and Joey Slotnick plays a guy who's teaching English as a second language, and there someone was asking about, oh, that scene was so funny. And I said, well, actually, that's what I really did. I taught English as a second language, and no, well, now that you've made this film, are you still teaching English as a second language? And the truth is, I still was, but I was. I think I lied. I was like, no, 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 I'm past that now. Which I don't. I don't know why I had felt. Yeah, it would have been better it. to tell. But, it was but, but a, yeah, it's, it's, but I was. It's that same thing of like, oh shit, I've had this little taste of something. Having to go back to what you were doing before is even harder in some ways. Yeah. That's funny because I talk to young people all the time who are like, you know, somebody calls and says, oh, will you meet my yeah. nephew, friend? I'm sure it happens to you too. And they want to get in the business. Can you give them some advice? And I can kind of tell right away with people if they have what it takes, not necessarily from a talent standpoint, but from a stomach standpoint, because people yeah. will say either, well, I really want to do it, but my parents aren't, you know, that I already know not happening because yeah. either... If they either because they need their parents' approval, if they've said that and they're not getting it, and or they'll say, or I also like blah blah blah. Okay, they're going to do that for a living, right? Because basically, if in my mind, I didn't even though I said law school, I didn't really give myself a backup plan. Yeah, and I think it was that desperation that ultimately got me over the hump because I just 
had to, I had to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I recently said that I was speaking to a group and I said that I said, you know, when my friend's parents would ask me if I had a backup plan, I'd say, if I had a backup plan, that would mean I think I'm going to fail. Right. So I, I just, I remember, you know, it takes that audacity. It really does. Yeah, because it's really, it's it's insane. And maybe, you know, it's, I think, probably just as insane on your side of the camera. Um, I don't, I don't know. What do you think of that? The, the, I guess to get to the point, I mean, you came on the scene really as a writer director, which yeah. is, which is power. I mean, when you can create real estate and you have material, that's, that's power. But I guess getting it sold is, is the, the tough part. You know, where yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's it's always all of it's hard, but I mean, I think I honestly think acting is the hardest. Yeah, because there's just so many the so, so many, many variables, people, so many variables, and there's so many times when actors come in and audition for me, and I kind of want to. They're not going to get the part, and I want to chase them out and go, "You're really good. It has nothing to. I don't want you to feel bad that you're not getting this part because there's so many reasons why someone might not get cast. They might yeah. be. They like might like look too much like someone else in the cast, or not look enough like the person who they're supposed to be playing. You know, that's supposed to be their brother, or they're too tall, or they're too. You know, it might be the silliest reason. Yeah. Or they just don't quite meet the mental picture you had for the character, even though they're a perfectly good actor. So yeah, there's so many, like you said, so many variables. The other thing is, you know, lots of people want to direct, but they wind up doing something tangentially related. That might get them there. They might become an editor or they work in the camera department or they're an assistant director or they're still on that path. But to be an an actor doesn't have a junior path. You know, it's like there's no, you know, you're an actor or you're not working as an actor. Yeah. So it's, I think it's harder. Yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think even a lot of actors who work, you know, at that, there's a tier of the actors that are, you know, when we're casting and they're, someone's got a couple lines. I mean, that, you can't make a living, you know, even if you're no. working solidly at those people who are working, you know, or yeah. in, in the in SAG and we're get three to five line parts and they're they're doing pretty good, well compared to most people who want to do it because they're actually getting cast in things. Right. Even they have to work and do other things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's difficult. Um, well, actually speaking about kind of tangential things, what is your, uh, do you, you, you know, how do you kind of um relate to the actual you know pre-production production post-production do you love the editing room or do you love actually being out there i know a lot of directors i speak to you know they're like yeah it's it's a pain in the ass to actually shoot the thing but once you get all of that clay and you're in the editing room and you can kind of you know look at it like what they love that aspect of it others love the battle of the shoot do you have anything that like kind of pops out for you or I really love all of it for different reasons. I mean, I like we were talking about the production is intensely collaborative. I also like how pressurized it is and that, you know, there's always a clock ticking. You've got to accomplish X amount in X amount of time. And there's a that's very energizing. So the, you know, the the connection with people, the pressure, the frenetic kind of and the sort of unpredictability of what of what's happening is really exciting. So yeah. I love production and I also love post, but it's also painful because you're living with, I mean, when you're shooting, it's all potential and you might have an imagination of how great it's going to be, 
or what you just got was so good. And, you know, I don't need to get that close up because that worked so great. And then you get in the editing room and you live with your choices. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, you're like, you know, mad at yourself that you didn't do something or... And sometimes you're discovering beautiful things. I mean, the nice thing about, the great thing about editing is not only is it a more um, relaxed and thoughtful part of the process and kind of you earn it after the frenzy of production to go into this quieter space. Yeah. But also because um, it's such a fragmented process, production, you know, most people think that it's almost, you know, if a movie's good or a TV show's good, it feels like it's all happening at once. But of course, we're shooting it in pieces. Yeah. And you never get quite the flow in production that you do in, in editing. So now you start to see all the pieces come together and then the music comes in. And now it's really when it goes from these little pieces you made on the set to this fully formed thing, as that starts to reveal itself, it's really exciting. So and then the amazing difference that can be made by shifting things around a little, you know, yeah. using one take instead of another from an actor's performance or swapping the order of two scenes and getting a totally different rhythm out of the thing or those discoveries are wonderful, but they're much more, they're much more, they're slower and more thoughtfully considered in the editing room as opposed to the frenzy of production. So Mm. I really like, I really like both parts of the process. The part of the process I enjoy the least is prep, which is, you know, scouting locations and going to lots of meetings and stunts and visual. It's, it's a more, it's more technical. Surre- it's, more, and... it's yeah. It's more logistical, and it's more getting in and out of vans and right. looking at this place and where are we going to park the trucks and where's the catering going to be. Although there's something about you know the way you work and why I got you the the Sydney Lumet book, which you know Lindy, you brought up Lindy, um, who did the wardrobe. Michael, our costume designer. Costume designer, and she was you know we she and I had great conversations about it, but she said you know you would meet with her, and it, it reminded me of how Sydney Sydney Lumet talks about going and meeting with you know the the lighting design and going through the lighting design, going through the the scene design, and he talks about. Um, what was a long day's journey into night? And he says, people, people tell me that I just, you know, shot the play. He's like, that's, you know, and he was, he says, if you look at, you know, the makeup from the first act to the third act and you know, the beginning of the film, you can see this, this arc of what's happened to Mary Tyrone. And I feel like you, I would imagine maybe wrongly so that you would enjoy those kind of meetings of the mind with the head department heads. I do. I mean, I enjoy all of it, but I think, you know, the prep is more, first of all, it's totally critical because that's where you tell everybody what the movie is, as we, like we talked about before. And, um, you know, it's every single part of the equation is, is super important. And just in the way that I talked about watching between action and cut, making sure nothing bumps me out of the ride that also goes for, I don't want to be bumped out of the ride by the lampshade or by what you're wearing or a prop I don't like. Or yeah. It all has to blend into an organic whole. And, um, you know, you have to kind of guess ahead of time how that's all going to come together in terms of what you're talking to the set dresser and the, the prop master and the costume designer. So, I mean, it's not that I don't enjoy that part of the process. It's but just, just a little more labored. Yeah. It doesn't have the spontaneity and the magic of production or yeah. production. You know? Yeah. But it's absolutely critical. Well, so something um, I found interesting working with you, not not very long, but I think just a couple of episodes on parenthood was uh, the first take I did for you. 
on Parenthood, I had a scene across a, a table with uh, Craig Nelson and uh, Erica Christensen was in, and, and I forget who, if it was maybe just the three of us, maybe there were more, but we did a take and you said, okay, that's great. Uh, just dirty it up, Matt. And I looked at you like, dirty, like, like improv, like I can, I can kind of, and you were like, yeah, whatever, you know, just throw it. And, and my experience on network TV is that is not the experience I've ever had of, of people feeling that loose. It's, we did a lot of that on Goliath and it was expected there more, mm-hmm. but how did you kind of, was that a Jason Kadams thing that, that kind of set the precedent because I know he worked that way on Friday Night Lights, which is one of my all-time favorite shows, um, where I unfortunately never worked on it, but I heard that they would, you know, just film the rehearsals, not give them marks, and, like, they cast it so well, and it, it's just, what a, a great show. You did that on Parenthood, and w- how did you guys get away with that, in a way, or did you find that to be different and different experience for you compared to other network shows you had done in the past? Totally unique as a network show. You know, Jason Kadams gave me an incredible gift of asking me to do that. And yes, what happened was, I mean, we were the beneficiaries of what had happened on Friday Night Lights. And, you know, Jason absolutely fell in love with the process on Friday Night Lights, which is that show was shot entirely on location. There were no sets no rehearsals, not even blocking rehearsals. Uh, you know, take one, cameras frequently would see each other or they stay out of each other, try to stay the hell out of each other's way. But basically it was, you know, well-written on the page. And then it was like, let's find more life to it and build on that as we go. And the, ama- the amazing thing to me is like, Jason's an incredible writer. I mean, of all the writers I've worked with, he's as probably better than anyone else. And yet he's the one who's not married to the words being said word for word. If anyone should and could demand it, it would would be him. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we had to thread the needle a little differently on Parenthood because the show has an aspirational quality. So it required a little bit more polish in the production. So where uh, in Friday Night Lights, it was really gritty and documentary style. In Parenthood, Jason came to me with this really interesting problem, which was, I mean, a creative dilemma slash not problem, but a something to solve, which was he said, look, I want to feel the immediacy and the energy that we had on Friday Night Lights, but I want it to have a little more gleam on it because Parenthood is a little more aspirational. So whereas, you know, in Friday Night Lights, you would really want to be in the room with those people, but you wouldn't necessarily want to live in those people's houses. You don't yeah, want to go. Yeah. In Parenthood, you kind of want to to create the feeling for the audience like oh i want to live there i want to be with those people and so we had to have so that's a way of saying we couldn't quite go as gorilla we needed to have beautiful lighting we needed to have but with but was still within slightly uh, more boundaried ways we tried to have cameras on multiple actors at once and and really improvise and the very first scene i directed on parenthood jason was there and it was really going well, but it was just exactly what was written. And what I said to you, essentially, was what Jason said to me, which is like, okay, um, well, what else could happen? I said, well, you wrote it. He said, I know, but I mean, you know, here they are. What else could they do? What else could they say? So I took that as this wonderful uh, permission slash mission to take, you know, do what he wrote, but elevate it by just being aware of what 
the moment had to offer. And the bad example I always use is that on any other show, if uh, the characters are sitting across from each other in a restaurant and someone knocks over their glass of water on any other show, that's cut, you know. But on Parenthood, that's, okay, now what's the scene going to happen? Now it's going to happen, you know. And that was constantly happening. And we had a cast that was really good at it and really game. And sometimes we would go really far from what was written and find something amazing. Sometimes we'd go really far from what what was written and go, you know what, we need to go back to the page because that's better. And we would do that. Yeah. So it was really, you became, you got to be part of this process that was all about discovery which for a network show is a blessing, and especially a show that's on for a lot, for many seasons. It, it never got stale because of that. Yeah. Did you start that in the first season or did you? I did. Tommy Shlomi directed the pilot. Yeah. And I came in right after as a producer director. You did. Okay. So I was, I was on from episode two. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And that, that show, I felt like that show just grew as it, you know, because we watched that from, from the beginning, I remember seeing the pilot because it was, you know, it was anticipated show. That was one, it was like, you know, from the creator of Friday Night Lights, you know, I know it was based on the film, but, um, and I felt like that, like the the actors just kind of, as that went along, really dropped into those roles. And it really was such a great ensemble. It was. I mean, it was I mean a, they're all amazing actors and it was really a, um, a great experience because, you know, we were portraying a family, but we're also kind of becoming a family. You know, the cast and crew was a very tight group. And Jason is just such a generous showrunner, creator who, you know, had very, you know, strong point of view about what the show should be. But, you know, really let us go out and make his show and uh, brought it back to him even better than what he you know, imagined. So did he it, stick around for, um, he was always or... deeply involved in the writing of the show and yeah. the editing of the show. Okay. Uh, but he was not on set very much. He but directed, was he like the official showrunner throughout the whole sure. run? Yes. He directed a couple episodes, but basically I was the guy on set, whether yeah. I was directing or someone else was directing. And he was in the writing, he was in the writing and in the editing and some, and I would join him in the editing as well, but he was very keenly involved in the writing of the show and the cutting of the show. But unless he was directing the episode, which was he directed probably one per season. Otherwise, he was not on set very much because he really wanted... And he didn't... This is another really unique thing about Parenthood. Uh, the writers were not really invited to set or not really allowed on set because he didn't want uh, the writers... Normally, for people who don't know, uh, there's a, usually a writer on the set who's producing the episode that they wrote. Or they're designated, one of the writers is designated to be on the set to make sure the script is kind of realized on the set. Jason didn't want that at all because he felt once it was on the page, the writer had done their job and now it was up to the actors and the director to realize it. And they he didn't want any preconceptions about how that would, would go. Totally unique. Yeah. And when writers did come on the set, they had to beg their way onto the set and promise not to say anything. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that because I've I've talked about you on this podcast. I, I, was, I had something where I was talking about delegating and I was saying how what we talked about before of how you, you know, really allow people to show up and bring their gift. But the uh, the oh, God, I just I just lost my train of thought about. Um, about oh, actors, oh, oh, no, directors. about how how you worked. I think I mentioned just, I had an actor here. Um, Eric Christian Olson. I don't know if you know him. And mm-hmm. and I said that you, at one point, I said, hey, I got this idea for something. And you were like, just do it. I'll, you know, I'll pull you back if I need to, you know, you just, just do it. Don't even ask for permission. And you were like, you know, the script is a template. And he goes, oh, writers don't want to hear that. I go, no, but Larry was in the writer's room as well. So you're mm-hmm. like on Goliath, you're a part of 
of writing it as well, or am I wrong about that? Did, did uh, you, that's were true. you I very mean, involved in the writer's room? Or Season two, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Season one, a little less so, but I was, I mean, David Kelly and Jonathan Shapiro wrote season one. Okay. And I was definitely engaged with them in terms of, I mean, they would write the draft and then I would really, you know, they would, I would give notes and we would talk and discuss and they were very open to to my feedback. That's how I would uh, worked in season one. Season two, I actually was with the writers and we developed the season together and I was deeply involved. And it wasn't in all a big, it points. wasn't a big writer's room. It was a all. very small, yeah. ultimately a very, very small writer's room. Intimate, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. Um, Jennifer Ames and Steve Turner were the head writers and just a couple other people. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I, that, so that's interesting to hear that, that he wouldn't let the writers on the set. Yeah. It's kind of incredible. I mean, I, I, I actually, you know, as, as an actor, I kind of, I like that because it it does it takes it takes on a different form in the you know it's like that's I always give the example of it's like a you know a rocket going up into space it's like you you know you need to get through the atmosphere and then you break that off and then mm-hmm. it becomes this little pod and it goes and when you get on onto a set it becomes kind of a new thing yeah it's interesting and, because you know some people's visions are really in place and intact right from the beginning. You know, I, I have a friend who uh, who you also know who directed on Mad Men, and he was at a prop meeting, and they put two props in front of him. And he said, I like this one. And the prop master said, well, Matt Weiner is going to like the other one. And he said, well, why did you even give me a choice? He said, well, I felt I should, but this is <laughs> we're going to go with the other one. And so the yeah. thing is that Matt Weiner had a fully formed idea of that show. And in the script, it would say where the actors were sitting and what order on the couch, I mean, the staging. So that's a fantastic show. So I'm yeah. not criticizing that process It's just at very all. different of- It's yeah. just the opposite of how Jason Kadams works, which is, I have an idea. I'm going to tell an amazing- He knows how to make an emotionally riveting story. And as long as we are- meeting that mark of where the emotion is and knowing and understanding the tone and he's very thorough on tone, then how you get there is very fluid. And that has a lot to do with, you know, a, you know, a show that has like Mad Men that has an incredibly restrained style, style a very compositional yeah. style versus a free flowing, loose docudrama comedy kind yeah. of feel. So I think it depends you know, process and product really working together. Right. And I think, you know, the one's not better than the other. It's just, you know, how a creative person wants to, get their vision out there. And it's yeah. certainly more fun to work on something that's collaborative. I, yeah, I agree. Although there's also, so I've had the luck of, you know, worked on West Wing. That was kind of, you know, where you, every period and every comma, you know, you right. really, you were in the hands of this writing that really determined the, the, the meter of the show and, 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 uh, scandal as well kind of had this, you know, this very specific, um, kind of tempo to it, to a lot of the writing. Some of the sections I had were more languid, but, and then, uh, Mamet, I had done speed the plow. And it's the same thing. It was like, you got on stage and you were shot out of a cannon, but it was beautiful language. So you were like, okay, cool. I'll go, I'll go on this ride. And it was really fun. But my, you know, my personal tastes, I think, lie in the Jason Kadams land of like, I just think it's, you know, if you were doing seven years of something, it's kind of more fun to show up and not know exactly how it's going to go. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, That's, I mean, 
I mean, in those cases that you mentioned, whether it's Sorkin or Mamet, I mean, the language itself is the music of the thing. Yeah. And so you can't mess with that. No, and if you and, if you do mess with that, yeah, you you kind of screw it all yeah. up. <laughs> Although to Sorkin's credit, because I directed on Studio 60, you know, not only did he have a script supervisor, but he had a person whose specific job was to make sure all the words were said as is. You, if it said it is, you don't say it's. You know, yeah. you, contractions are contractions and don't contract a word that's not a contraction because there's a music. But that said, I felt Aaron was very generous about, I still had tons of space to realize, the language was the language, but the visual part of it, you could I could do whatever yeah. I wanted. And, um, you know, he was very generous that way. Um, but yeah, if it's if it's Sorkin, if it's Mamet, if it's even, you know, any, you know, Matt Weiner, there's people whose writing is, the language is really, you don't mess with that. Right. But, you you know, want to, you actually, you want to honor that because that that is... It's, I mean, it's also, it's a character on the show. I mean, it's a, right. in, a, in a way, it's one of the style, like Mad Men, it's a, that, that style and just the the look of the show. and the, Right. Yeah. And, um, on, you know, on a show like Parenthood or on Goliath, Goliath, you have Billy Bob Thornton and you have Nina Arianda, two actors who are, have their, a particular vernacular and you can write for them. Uh, but they will find a way, it would be a shame to try to prevent them from saying the things the way they would say them. Yeah. You know, and then that translates all the way through the cast, including, you know, everybody that comes into it, you included that you're invited to find, you know, the scene is the scene and it's got certain objectives and we have to meet those. But within that, there's a lot of room to play and find. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's cool about Goliath, I think the first, this is like a commercial for Goliath now. No, but the, the first season um, that I got to see, I remember thinking it's, you know, it's also beautifully shot. I mean, it's very moodily shot and the and the music is really cool. I mean, it's a real kind of grit to it and um, there's an aesthetic to it. You know, it's not like, I'm just thinking of our conversation right now. It makes it sound like we have, you know, we just, the cameras are all over. It's it's actually very beautifully shot, I think. Yeah, I mean, we're, you know? it's a much for, more formal show than Parenthood was. Parenthood right. was really... Has had a visual beauty to it, but it was much more about um, that verite, handheld kind of. There was a poet poetry to that, but it yeah. was definitely a, not a formalized look visually. Whereas on Goliath, we were making a, a contemporary noir, and it had it was very, you know, all the compositions were very specific, and the you know the graphic, the language of the show, which plays into the themes of the show, is really important. So it's a much more f- visually formal show yeah but within that we still try to give a lot of room for spontaneity and if you you know if you have a a frame i mean one of my favorite things to do is just to hold a frame and let actors move around without it within it i mean within so that it, you yeah. can you can start off further back in the shot and then walk into your own close-up or maybe even walk off camera and come back in and that's another way of having a kind of feeling of spontaneity without having to move the camera around yeah but you can move an actor around within a beautiful frame yeah. And there's still the sense of spontaneity and movement. Yeah. What about music? Because are, are you a musician? Like, do you play instruments? Because I mean, I grew up playing violin, but I, you know, just enough to be a good appreciator of music. But are you, a, are you, you strike me as, I, I don't, we haven't really talked about it, but as a real, just from the music that you've chosen in the episodes that I've seen that were yours, are, are you like a big jazz blues guy? Or are you kind of like I mean, a connoisseur? I, I like music a lot and I know a lot about music, but I can't take full credit for that stuff. I mean, we have amazing editors and amazing music supervisors yeah. and a great composer. 
John Ehrlich. And um, so it's more about what, the thing we talked about before, which is about expressing a feeling or a sensibility. John Ehrlich is an incredible composer. I've worked with him on several shows. Um, he did also did Parenthood. So that was just a very simple acoustic guitar score. And, we're, you know, uh, Goliath is much more, you know, moving between lush and orchestral to more machiney and kind of weird kind of 80s-ish sounding and mechanical. Like, it's got a very strange soundscape that I did not talk to him about in any really specific terms, you know. He just took it and yeah, ran I mean, with he, it. Yeah, John Ehrlich's amazing because you should talk to him about everything except the music. You know, he wants to know about the themes. He wants to know about the tones. He wants to know about the emotions. And the, he doesn't want you to say... I want he gets this kind song. Of, he or... kind of bristles when you're like, what about some strings? Or what about... The, he's just like, oh, shh, 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 leave that to me, you know. And because he's so good... That's cool. Um, I like you that. You know... The only thing I'll say is like, for example, on the the season finale of uh, season two, I said, I really want you to use a, a live orchestra. I want a really lush string section. And at first he balked a little bit. He's like, oh, we don't need to do that. Then he really embraced it. And it was a thrill to go into the studio with him and like a 50 piece orchestra to score the oh. last episode. So there's little ways that I engage in, a, in, in specificity, but mostly it's about conveying tone, conveying story, conveying sensibility, and then he brings me back the gold. And the editors, too, so they often choose the songs. We also have music supervisors. And, yeah, sometimes I do um, have a specific idea of what I want to hear, and I'll say we should try this or that song. But it's more about curating it and kind of editing it, you know, saying this is good, this is... But I appreciate, I mean, thank you for noticing, but I definitely care deeply about the music. Yeah, yeah, you you can tell. But that's that's really I love that he says like don't talk to me about the don't don't tell me my business like basically just you know what do you what are the elements you right. want I'll take care of how you're gonna get exactly it I mean, it's funny to think you know like this is the composer don't talk to him about the music you yeah know? which but is it, I mean not that he's a diva but he's literally like I know better than you do which is true just tell me what you're after emotionally you know don't yeah. tell me what you want what instruments you want to hear or what what the uh, time signature should be or what key yeah. is, you know? Yeah. that's Okay. So another one I want to ask you about, which um, I actually didn't, didn't really know this about you until uh, a little prep for this interview was that you did a lot of uh, scrubs. I did. I directed in the first two seasons. I directed the first two a lot seasons. of episodes. Yeah. Okay. Which I used to watch back in the day. I don't think I watched the entire run of that show, but I was pretty into it for a while, probably those first two seasons and, and a little beyond. Um, and, and one of the things about that show that, uh, so one of, one of my best friends from college, um, is now a trauma surgeon. And he said, I, I don't know how we got to talking about it. And, and he said, Scrubs from his experience was the most accurate capturing of the tone of working in a hospital. And I said, really? I said, more than like you know, ER or whatever. And he's like, no, he said, it's so high stakes that we are constantly, it was like, they're playing practical jokes on each other and and they had, they needed levity. And I just found that, I found that kind of interesting. Cause I, I mean, you know, that show obviously goes into daydreams and mm-hmm. it's definitely more comic than anything, but well- yeah, I mean, I think that show's fant. The first couple of seasons of that show to me are are masterful, and they yeah. really hold up. And I think what your reason why your friend said that is because what it did uniquely was tap into the fear, and you know, 
medical shows make doctors into heroes. Yeah. And in Scrubs, though they are heroic, they're also fearful. They're kind of incompetent. They talk about how the nurses know everything and they know nothing at the beginning, which is true. They're coming out of medical school and everything they know is from a textbook. You have these nurses that have been there for 20 years and suddenly they have to answer to these snot-nosed kids. And it's really about, you know, coming of age and finding your humility and finding your skill. And it was incredibly... Uh, deft at mixing comedy and drama. And it was yeah. it was a, sort of at the beginning of the single camera comedy thing. That was a new thing back then. Yeah. You know, there was yeah. mostly a comedy was a sitcom shot in front of a live audience. But the idea that you could do something filmic with comedy was kind of new at that time. Um, and Scrubs was also, Bill Lawrence was another generous showrunner in that. I was just going to ask you. you know, yeah, he, you... he had a rule. He would he was great because he would go to the the rehearsal. He would usually change something. He would hear the really keen ear. So he'd hear the line said. He would change sometimes change a line or two. And then he would then he would leave. He might watch take one, but basically the rule with what the director and what the actors was, you have to do one take, a one good take where you say every single word as written. A good one. Get it good one time. Then do whatever the hell you want. So that was an incredibly good rule. Yeah. Because he didn't have to be on set all the time and wonder if we were messing with what he had created. Right. But he knew that all these actors and the directors were talented enough to bring him something else. So we would do a bunch of alts. We would try things. We would experiment. We always had to do one take just how we wrote it. And that was a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was very generous. I was wondering. I, I imagine. I, I've, I've auditioned for him before and he seemed very cool. I don't know him really. Um, but I just heard... Actually, uh, Dak Shepard, his podcast interviewing Zach Braff, and he was talking about Bill Lawrence and just saying, you Did know. Did they he, talk about how they were ha- hated rivals, Zach Braff and Dak Yeah, they, it was hysterical. They talked about how they, they get mistaken, they mistaken for, each for each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very funny, actually. Yeah. Um, it was very funny. Uh, but But he talks a lot about Bill Lawrence and saying he was given this incredible opportunity. And I was wondering what your experience was on that on that show um because that was a great it was also a great cast again really well cast john john, john McGinley, McGinley uh, was amazing. his his monologues he had yes. the, he was so funny and they did such a good job of like you're saying it was almost you know in a weird way it had that it did the same thing that sorkin did where um like Sorkin, drive, 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 and then he opens it up, and you get emotion. Yes, he kind of is masterful at 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 pushing you, and then giving you breath, so you can, as an audience, you can get emotional. Yes, and I think that that Scrubs had that. You know, they would kind of be funny, 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 and then it would land with you'd hear like a voiceover and then like the lesson that was learned, and it was always kind of this good-hearted kind of. Yes. You know, there would usually be some lyrical music based yeah. thing at the end, voiceover, great song, montage thing where you took all the sort of comedic elements from the first part of the show and put them into a more poignant turn. So, you know, the guy who the the patient who's joking about all his illnesses and then it's just it's funny at the beginning is now, you know, genuinely healing or dying or whatever it is. And now you're making an emotional connection and. You know, it's like you're invited in through comedy, but then ultimately led to this emotional. Place. Yeah, they kind of give you. Yeah, so they yeah. kind of give you the best of of both worlds. It's funny, I haven't watched that show in in years and years. But. Neither have I, but I'll say of all the things I've done, it's in the top two or three things that people 
when they find out I did that they want to talk about and they're excited about. Really? Mm -hmm. Really? Uh, And now what about, um, and I didn't realize until we sat down tonight, your connection, the, you know, the Matt Reeves, the JJ Abrams uh, connection. So I I know Felicity and um, uh, Alias, it was that? Yeah, so that, so so it goes, so Felicity was created by Matt and JJ. So I had made my, I'd made an independent film that got some traction, got me agency representation. But those guys, again, they they gave me my first big shot by letting me direct on Felicity. Yeah. And in fact, I'm going to the um, Austin Television Festival next month for the 20-year uh, anniversary of Felicity. So that'll be really funny uh, and fun because uh, we were all so young. I mean, I was 30 and Carrie Russell was 20. And I mean, it was just uh, kids running that show. And JJ and Matt were 30-year-old showrunners. Then from... Felicity, JJ created Alias, and I went on to Alias as well as a producer-director. And that's the show I really feel like I learned how to direct on was on Alias because it was such a demanding show. The the, um, production value was so ambitious. We were doing so much stunt work and visual effects work and and just hustling all the time. And I just had to really learn on my feet all that stuff because I... I had only done sort of uh, warm-hearted comedic drama stuff before that. Yeah. But then I got to open up the genre tool bag and learn how to do, you know, chase scenes and visual effects sequences and stunts and yeah, fights and all that stuff. That was a really well-received. I don't. I didn't watch um, a lot of Alias. I think I saw a few episodes, but I I kind of like missed the boat on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was so. That's interesting. It got you. It, it you were almost forced into this other thing that you was not really your well i just i always had an interest in it but i was like my the um, after because my film that i made uh was a romantic comedy so the things that people were interested in hiring me for were character driven sort of sweet romantic things like felicity even like scrubs you know that were very much in the wheelhouse of what i'd done yeah um alias was had a little bit of everything. It did have some comedy. It did have some very, it was very character driven and there were a lot of emotional connections between the characters. But then the toolkit of like, well, how do you stage a a fight scene? And how do you actually do a stunt sequence? When do you, you know, we can only crash the car one time. So how do we have it spin out in three different angles before we crash it? And, you know, all those things that, you know, just the, the technique, the technique of how to put those things together uh, were really unbelievably fun to learn and, I got to learn them on my feet on that show because it was such an ambitious show. And we I directed one of directing like fifteen episodes of Alias, and yeah. then we had an incredible cast. Jennifer Garner was amazing, and then we had a great regular cast, and then we'd have all these incredible guests coming in. I got to work with Lena Olin and Isabella Rossellini, and was was Quentin Bradley Tarantino Cooper was on, on that show? Bradley Cooper was like seventh on the call sheet, and he was <laughs> great, but they couldn't they couldn't really find. They couldn't find anything for Bradley, so he wound up he wound up wound up leaving the show after a couple of seasons because his part was designed to be outside of her world as a spy. She was living a double life, so oh. all the good shit was happening with her as a spy. Oh, and he was like the and all the people that were the who was her best friend at home who was in love with her. The characters who were outside of her spy world who didn't know what she was doing, they couldn't ever really find a good role for them. So yeah. as good as Bradley was, and he was really good then too. There just wasn't a, a way to get him integrate him into the show. Yeah. So it's it's funny that he became the breakout star from the show. Yeah, it's funny that that's. Uh, I mean, actually, that's a question for you because you've worked with a lot of um, really great actors. Uh, I mean, what what have you? I don't even know. I I never like to ask about this because I don't want to like your. Um, 
I wouldn't be looking for gossip, but more like what have you learned from working with some, you know, like Billy Bob, for example, is just, I think his work is incredible. I mean, he's, you can't catch the guy acting. Um, do you, do you find that you stay out of the way of someone like that? Or are you, is it still a collaboration? Um, I mean, he feels very much a, you know, a huge force on Goliath, for example, but you've worked with tons of great actors. Like what, how do you, um, I, I don't even, I'm not even sure I have a proper question yeah. here. I mean, I think um, if you're asking about what is my process with someone who's like really, a, you know, at that level of fame or accomplishment, you know, do they still, you know, the truth is that all, everybody wants to you to engage with them. It's just a question of how, Yeah, yeah. you know, and I think that some actors are, you know, Billy Bob is very self-sufficient yeah. in that he... The talk, any talk he might have is just if he doesn't understand or agree with something that's in the scene, you know, whether it's language or whether it's the intent of the scene, he might say, you know, he might come into a rehearsal with an axe to grind and then there's a conversation to be had. Yeah. But if there's not and he's pretty, is cool with what's going on in the scene, he basically wants you to suggest the blocking and he's like, well, he's usually very comfortable with that. And then what I find with an actor like him is that it's mostly... Most of the time, it's just like, that was really good. Do you want to go again? Or how do you feel? He's like, no, I'm good. And then we're good. But there are times, even with him, where I where I notice something that he might have, I might have an, an idea that he didn't think of, or he may have forgotten something that's important, and I remind him of it. But um, m- the point is, even if it's just to say, that was really good, you want to go again? Or are you cool? I mean, that's still a kind of a way of engaging or checking in. Or yeah. I liked how you did this, or I noticed you did that. So I yeah. feel like... Um, there's still every actor wants at some level of engagement, but some and some really want to chew it, chew it up and really work on it and think about it and talk about it ahead of time. I mean, one time I screwed up because I was going to work with I mean, I will name names because who cares? But I just was I was going to when I did damages, I was going to work with Glenn Close and I was very excited to work with her. I was a huge fan of her. And, you know, I maybe was a little anxious about it so I asked the director who was directing before me you know well, how does she work what is what does she like to do and he said well she's very analytical and she really likes to just talk about the scene a lot ahead of time and and uh, really go through what the motivations are and even before you put it on its feet and for me that's the opposite of how I normally work yeah, I don't yeah. say very much at all I just say does anybody have let's read it through does anybody have any questions okay, let's put it on its feet and see how it feels. And then maybe I would thread in some ideas as we go, but I don't like to start with a lecture of any kind. Yeah. Um, but because it was Glenn Close and I was told that's how she works. Yeah. Very first day on the set, she walks on the set, I go, okay, well, I think this scene is about, she, whoa, 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 whoa. Can we just read it? Like, why are you telling me all this? Yeah. And I was like, yep, you're telling me what I already know and I fucked up. And then I didn't have her trust because- Yeah. And I don't know if that other director was. Did the other like torpedo you? I think he did. I think he did. Wow, what a terrible story. I know, but the thing is, I'm really glad that happened because the point is, getting back to your original question, is it doesn't matter if it's Glenn Close or someone you've never heard of. This is the way I direct. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. And what I, but that means I, I am attentive to some actors really want to engage and really want you to come in there and work with them and give them adjustments and other people kind of want to find it for themselves. Yeah. And 
it's just about creating a, a safe space for them where they feel like they can do that. Yeah. And that you're watching. Yeah. You know, there's even little signals. Like if you call cut and go right to the camera people and start telling them about all the technical stuff before you go to the actors, it gives a signal to the actor that, oh, he cares more about the camera than he does about us. Yeah. So I always try to go. But it's interesting because I'm thinking for myself, I'm like, I, I feel like I've changed over the years in terms of I used to be more worried about, I think, I think when I was younger, I was more worried about pleasing the director. And as I've gotten older, I, I'm less inclined to look for, like, I think I used to kind of, maybe you could tell me I'm wrong and I actually did this with you, you know, a couple months ago. But I think now, like, if I feel like I'm on a good path, I don't, I'm not going to seek out. Like, I, I think I used to fish for things, you know, what do you think? You know, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like well, just trying just... to get, and, and I don't think I do that, at least not as much anymore. No, you know? I don't know. Yeah, you definitely didn't do that. I think, you know, you did check in with me, like, yeah. what do you think? Is this going? Yeah, or do you want to try something yeah. different? Do you want to, you know, you want to go, in a, but, but, um, no, I think you're right. And I think that just comes with confidence and experience. I mean, the truth is, for an actor, if you're in the role, that means they thought I was good for this role because they cast me. Yeah. Now I'm going to do what I do and I they'll let me know if it's not what they're thinking, yeah. you know? So I think that's the way to go because the irony is and you're you're more likely to please the director by doing what you what think you want to do. Yeah. yeah. Which and, is in a way you would in that, you know, that story from Damages, you would have been more more pleasing to her had you just done what your instincts always tell you to right. do, which is like don't talk about it beforehand. Right. And I mean, there's, of course, if you're going to work with a really legendary actor, you do want to learn a little bit about their process, you know? So whether I've worked with, you know, William Hurt, it was a idiosyncratic process. So it was, that was kind of like learning on my feet. And what's interesting is when you work with two actors who have opposite processes, you yeah. know, like Billy Bob Thornton and William Hurt. Billy Bob Thornton, very instinctive, doesn't want to over-discuss, really wants to find it in the moment. William Hurt, theater-trained actor, wants to just get into the granularity of everything. Yeah. And, um, and that is a challenge when you've got two actors with two different processes. Or an actor who really wants, you know, best after the first couple of takes in a scene with someone who likes to do lots of takes and chew it up and find it. So it's like, yeah. that could be a challenge, too, because, you know, you can't, you have to be nimble about, you know, working around how actors like to work. You know? Yeah. And then, and cutting the scene, I guess that's, you know, are you, are you ever choosing like a lot of things from the, the latter half of the takes for one actor and, and earlier stuff for to another some actor? actor? I mean, it depends. Yeah. There are yeah. some actors who really tend to be best in the beginning and there's some actors who really find it and warm up into it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, and then when you're struggling with an actor, I mean, I, you know, when it's really, when there's a problem, when it's not going the way you want, then you, I literally have a mental checklist of like the lines of dialogue. Do I have that line yet with a good performance? Then I'll go in and sort of surgically give adjustments between takes to make sure I got, okay, I already have those three lines. Yeah. Now I'll make sure I get those two lines. But that's only when really something isn't going well. Just to make sure you're. Yeah. Just make sure I know I have. Yeah. A credible performance for each line of dialogue, you know. Yeah. Um, so when I wanted to kind of, you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm thinking as we're sitting here talking, I'm having such a great time. It's, it's almost different from some of the other interviews because I'm just so interested in this. So I don't know if you're listening right now, like what you're, uh, if people are going, well, what is the 10,000 no's of this? But you know, Hey, you're learning about, uh, the film and TV business. So, um, 
The, we covered it a little, right? I we mean, did. I yeah, we did. Yeah. Nice, we talked about you know, pizza. And, you know. We struggled for several years. And I would, the other thing I would say is that, you know, for me, the 10,000 no's were all the girls that said no to me when I was growing up. Because <laughs> I think a lot of my creative energy came from not getting the girl, you know. Really? I think so. I mean, I think that feeling a little bit of outside. I mean, I was popular because I had a good personality or it was funny. I always could connect with people on the friend level. But I think... I always wanted to make, you know, romantic connections that I, you know, got in my own way a lot. And I think that yeah. a lot of my creative angst and the desire to make things and create things were about trying to impress girls or trying to win over girls or yeah. vent to the frustration of not being getting the intention of girls. So I'd yeah. say like the 10,000 no's were the romantic no's, you know, yeah. uh, early on. So for sure. I mean, and also just feeling, but that gives you this power of observation sometimes when you're not like, yeah. you know, when you see what other people do and how they make it happen in a way that, you know, you <clears throat> are a little bit outside of. Yeah. And I feel a lot of, a lot of actors, a lot of artists period are, um, we are in some ways outsiders looking at that. That is, I think the drive, uh, sometimes is like, you're, you're kind of feeling like, I, I mean, it just, know a lot of actors that grew up moving around or that, you know, and they say, well, they always had to develop this kind of move to a new town and make new friends. And, and they were the outsider and they felt like they, um, you know, they didn't, they weren't a part of the crowd and they had to somehow maneuver to get in there. Right. Um, and then what about sports? So you played basketball growing up, right? And did you... I mean, Play I all like, the way through high school? Or? Yeah, I mean, I played, but I played at a school that was had was really good. So, like, you know, several of the kids went, played college basketball. And so out I. Out of Sam Ohio? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I only made it to junior varsity. Um, but yeah, I was an okay. I mean, I'm not tall, I'm not fast. I, you know, I, I understood the game pretty well. But I mean, I'm, I was like decently athletic enough to be, a, you know, enough to be able to play. And I mean, I wasn't like a geek that couldn't, you know, that was uncoordinated. I was like, okay. But yeah. I didn't, I didn't excel as an athlete either. And of course, the athletes at that age, you know, in high school were the ones that were the, you know, the real studs. Yeah. And did, did you play anything else besides basketball or just basketball? I got into cycling, yeah. but not competitively, but just I love cycling. Yeah. And then so uh, you went undergrad Columbia. Um, you're, what was that experience like? And we won't, I won't walk you through the entire thing, but I, I kind of just get a little bit of like the, the, you know, prior to coming back out and going to film school, when you were undergrad, what was your, you knew at that point? That I think were, I knew that I wanted to do something with film and writing. And, you know, my parents were very cool about it, but said, you know, you should go get a regular education first. If you want to, don't get a specialized undergraduate Was it education. like a, BA, a Bachelor of Arts? Yeah, like I just a got like English a BA major. and I was in English, exactly. And um, I so. loved, I was in, you know, it was to be in New York, sort of pre-gentrified Upper West Side, it was pretty gritty back then. Yeah. You know, it was basically, you know, a, a pretty, you know, kind of a rough neighborhood. Manhattan was still really, you know, coming out of that, its bankruptcy phase and a lot was of- Was it late, late it was 80s? In, I was in the mid to late 80s. Yeah. yeah. So it was coming out of that phase and it was sort of going into the go-go Wall Street phase. It was transitioning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was so exciting to be a student in New York and thrilling. And uh, and I did have some creative opportunities there, but it was really when I went to UCLA after that for film that I started to think more seriously about doing this. Any any particular um, teachers at UCLA that were like, because they had people that were actually in 
the industry. A few. Right. I mean, the oh, thing not is, some... I mean, not like USC. USC okay, yeah, is very well connected to the... I think, by the way, UCLA is better at it now. When I was there, not so much. I, with a couple of notable exceptions, I had an editing teacher, Richard Marks, who had was one of the editors of The Godfather and, and um, Apocalypse Now, was a very noted editor who was very encouraging to me. And um, I had actually, when I was getting out of film school... He had said, you know, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I love, I want to be a director, of course, but I love editing too. So I was thinking maybe I would start off by trying to get a job as an assistant editor because I get my foot in the business. And he had said, you know, if you get a job as an assistant editor, you'll be very lucky if you become an editor. Don't even do a job in the business. Just do something else. And then you can always call yourself a director. That was an amazing piece of advice. Huh. So I, that's why I didn't really, I mean, yes, I worked as a PA once or twice, but I... He knew that if I went down one of those paths that I wouldn't probably wind up becoming a director. I mean, by the way, for other people, that's a totally legitimate, great way to go. But for me, he was right that I should just do whatever to pay the bills, call myself a director, and I could keep doing that. And then eventually it'll come through. And he was great. And then there was another teacher there, a Polish filmmaker named Jerzy Anczak, who had won, had been uh, nominated for a Best uh, Foreign Film Oscar in the 70s for a film made in Poland, and then he had run afoul of the communist regime there, and he fled to the States and became a professor at UCLA and was very inspiring, very passionate, and just lacerated me on my my student, my thesis film. I, did, I made the film, and he was just so merciless in his critique of it, and he's so disappointed in me. He's heartbroken how terrible it was, and I believed in you, and I mentored you, and you gave me this piece of shit. And really? I literally went home and threw up and went to my bed and was like in bed for 48 hours and then so sick and horrified and depressed. And then I reconceived the whole film in my head and went back and shot 10 days and saved the film. So I owed, owed him everything. Really? For his just total unsparing honesty and inspiration. So he was a great teacher. But other than those two guys was mostly people who were teaching there because they couldn't make a living in the business. Yeah. Yeah. And what and so like what advice you know now it's obviously totally different landscape in terms of kids can go out and you know you can shoot something on your phone right now. I mean it's a totally different deal than it was then. So like, what advice do you have to you know people might be listening to this that are aspiring filmmakers, you know, whether, I, I, you know, on either side of it, maybe they want to be an editor, they want to be a director. Like, is your advice just like, just go shoot? Or if you're a writer, go write. If you're, what what do you say to them? What's your- Yeah, I mean, of- when I went to film school, you know, it was so expensive to try to make something that if you weren't in film school, you could never afford to like rent the equipment, get a soundstage, but, you know, buying film and processing it was so expensive. But you're right. Now you can make a film on your phone, you can edit on your laptop, um, so film school is not as necessary as it was. If you're, if you have the discipline to go out and make things while you're doing other things to pay the bills, I think that's the way to go. Yeah. If you've, you know, can afford to go to film school and think that, you know, Hey, if I have to be working full time, I'm not going to be able to devote my creative energy and resources to doing things creatively and trying to make that go forward. Then, then film school is a viable option. Um, and also for the connections and the networking, film school is valuable. But um, I, I, I don't think it's a necessity at all. And less, it's less necessary than it used to be, for sure. Because yeah. like you said, anyone can make something. Yeah, You have a different challenge now. It used to be that if you managed to get a film made, you know, you could get it seen. Now there's so much content out there, it's hard to, for people to pay attention. When, yeah. when I made my um, independent film, Dinner and Driving, 
We shot it on 35 and I was literally was taking, I shipped the print to New York and I remember I was like, had a dolly, <laughs> a hand dolly with the six reels of the film that I was schlepping around downtown. I would take it to Miramax and drop it off and then I would take it to New Line. But they would actually screen the film at lunch or whatever. They had screenings because I was just a guy who made a film. And so Miramax would watch your film. I mean, that would never happen today because there's everybody's making a film. Yeah. So there were certain advantages that we had, which were if you managed to be able to make a film, it was more likely to get seen. But yeah. it was so much harder to make it to begin with. Now anyone can make it. It's harder but to it's get harder seen. But it's hard to get seen, which yeah. is also a little bit of the, you know, the TV landscape now you know, we're talking about a show on Amazon who would have known that, you know, five years ago, right? You wouldn't, would you imagine this or how? No, how I mean, it's like it's now we're aspiring to work at the website that sells you toilet paper. Yeah. I no, mean, I mean, it's crazy to me, but it's. Uh, there's so many great shows, but there's so many shows I haven't seen out now. You know, I feel like every day I'm having conversations with people talking about some new series and I'm like, ah, oh, that sounds awesome, but. I know. I haven't seen it, or I've seen one episode, or I've seen two episodes, or whatever. It's overwhelming. I, so I don't know if you have this experience, but sometimes I'll like open up the Netflix page and I'll just be overwhelmed. I'm like, I don't know where to start. Yeah. I don't know what to look for. <laughs> I mean, it's like I'm in the mood to watch something, but I don't know what. But you don't know what. Yeah. yeah. And you don't know what you want to commit to. And then you hear, you know, people are talking about a series, but you're already two seasons behind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know. It's 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 kind of awesome and it's also overwhelming at the same time. Yeah. I'm just starting, you know, I'm finding shows now that I'm watching for the first time that are a few years old. You know, I just watched The Leftovers, which I think is amazing, but I did not watch it during the time. And that's one of those ones I was away doing a film in New Orleans. I had a lot of time on my hands and I remember seeing the pilot and being blown away by it. Watched the next episode, really liked it. And then I just dropped off. I don't even know why. Yeah, but that I, happens all the time. It's just, there's so much stuff and there's such a flood of content and new players are getting into the game all the time you know apple's about to get in i just talked to my friend yeah. who's creating a show for facebook i mean oh is it the the cult one yes oh i went in for i thought it was really great script yeah it was a really cool i, I, I remember i was podcast. like facebook i was like what's that it's based on a podcast oh oh yeah okay maybe, and, maybe it's a different one maybe that's one, actually that say, might be the limit cult or occult uh, the one that this I this is went about in like mental telepathy and people who disappear who use it and disappear. Oh no, that might be the one that Linda Lowy is casting oh, okay. right now. She said she was doing something interesting that was based on a podcast. And no, this was like based on a. It was based on either a short story or uh, something. It, it like opened with a girl with no hands. I don't know. It was really interesting. But no, it was like a cult, like somebody that like went into the woods and started a, oh, got it. a whole- Different thing. But yeah. The, but, but it was but it was really, I, I remember reading the script and thinking, this is really good. It was a half hour, but it was serious. And it was, uh, it was well-written. And I was like, Facebook? And then you realize like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, nobody thought AMC yep. was going to have Mad Men and it didn't. Now that's the thing. It's kind of great. It's all all around us, really. You, yeah. know, you judge it by the actual project, not by the, you know, the, the outlet, I guess. Yeah. And there's so much more freedom in these streaming platforms. You know, when you're talking about network shows, they have to be a certain length. They have to have commercial breaks. There's a lot of restrictions on the content. And that works very well for certain kinds of shows. But, you know... The idea that if the show wants to be an hour long, then that's how long that episode will be. Or if it needs to be 43 minutes long, that's how long it'll be. Yeah. If we want to have, you know, graphic content, we will. But, you know, so it's, it feels like there's a lot more freedom in terms of the form. Yeah. Um, 
So I've really been enjoying working in that in that space. And there's, um, you know, and frankly, places like Netflix and Amazon just have devote a little bit more resources to the shows they make. So you have, are you able to be more ambitious? Yeah. And also not to have to, you know, uh, come up with 22 episodes in a That's season, which wonderful. is a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to break all that story and still feel like it's fresh. It's kind of amazing when you think about something like Friday Night Lights or Parenthood. I mean, yeah. how many episodes of Parenthood were there? There were like six seasons of 22 six episodes? Six seasons that ranged from 13 to 22. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's a lot. That's a lot, and um, it's hard to keep uh, any kind of narrative momentum going for that many episodes. Yeah. Um, so now, uh, what about film at some point for you? Because you've been really, you, you know, oh, now you're with Amazon where, you know, Goliath, you're doing eight episodes in a season. But do you have a desire at some point to go to make a film at, at some point, or are you kind of like, no, this is the medium that I want to be in. I like doing this longer form. Mm-hmm. What, what's your I mean, I would never or... want to stop making television, if that's what you call it. I mean, yeah. I don't even know what to call it if yeah. it's on Amazon, but um, I wouldn't, but yes, of course, I've always dreamed of making movies and I've made a few independent films, but I'd still, I'm still, you know, always sniffing around other projects. I mean, frankly, you know, the vast majority of the movies that get made are either superhero movies or very broad comedies. And, you know, I don't think I'll be making either one of those things. I never rule it out. But, you know, really the kind of stuff I love, which is character driven material, whether it's, you know, it could be in different genres because I do love genre. But if it's deep character work, you're more likely to find it in television than in movies. Yeah. Except for those handful of films that come along at Oscar time, you know. So, yeah. Yes, I mean, the, 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 I would love to make a film. I'd love to find a project, and I've tried, you know, pushing the rock up the hill on things all, all the time. But um, I'm also love working in this longer form because it's a deeper way to look at character, and it's more the character is really what's in demand in television. You know, yeah. when I came out of film school, I only ever dreamed of making movies, but I think I slid into the very beginning of this great golden age of television. So I've been very really, really lucky to get to develop the craft and work at this time, you know, in yeah. television. And what about, um, I'm going to let you go soon because it's just getting late and I don't want to keep okay. you all night. How long have we talked but, for? Uh, uh, we're at uh, almost an hour and a half. Wow. Um, so the, the other thing was you you have a family and you seem to, how old are your kids? I have three kids. My son is a sophomore in college and my daughter is a freshman uh, excuse me, a senior in high school, about to be a freshman in college, and then my little ones in freshman in high school. Freshman, and and any of them interested in this business? All of them, unfortunately, they are. <laughs> yeah, really? my son is studying film at DePaul University. My daughter, who is going into college, wants to write, and my little one is a little theater geek, actress, singer. You know. Wow. So, so you must you, know? you must be doing something right. They all want to do what well, you... They all grew up on set and eating craft services and yeah. the glamour of it and the creativity of it was really, you know, powerful to, for them to be around. So I say, unfortunately, half jokingly, only because yeah. I know the 10,000 no's await them. Exactly. But um, of course, I just as my parents, you know, encouraged my passions, I do the same for them. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask you was, you know, what do you, you know, well, I wasn't even going to go there. I was actually going to say... Um, you know, you have this, it, it seems like, like, again, I come back to that kind of like normal, I put it in quotes, like this normal existence. And yet, you know, you're in a, you are in a pretty 
I, I don't think of it as like glamorous because when you're inside of it, it doesn't seem like it's glamorous, but you're kind of, you know, you're on these, these shows that are high profile and um, the time when you're in the season, I mean, you're running Goliath. I mean, I imagine that's like crazy, crazy hours. You're there all the time and yet you seem to have it, um, it seems at least from my vantage point, like pretty even keeled for you. You mean in terms of balancing with family? Yeah, balancing family and and work and yeah. I mean, that. I think that I mean, look, and there's even times when I'm out of the state or out of the country for extended periods of time to work. So I would say I'm very focused on being a parent and a husband, but it's um, probably more quality than quantity in terms of you know I'm I'm more absent physically than most people would be. But when you're but, there, um, when you're I'm there, there, I'm very. I try to be really there. So yeah. I think that makes up for it. I mean, you'd have to ask my wife, but who's amazing and fills in the fills in for me when I can't. But um, no, I stay connected to my to my family. It's obviously my top priority, and um, and they obviously are like like visiting sets because you're saying that they're all kind of uh, interested in doing this, that they're somehow, they've been involved in some way, at least in like having philosophical conversations about storytelling or about kind of even technique of, well, it's really fun because my two older kids are now becoming cinephiles and they have their very distinct tastes and disagree with me and have their own. And they're starting to notice, you know, what Wes Anderson does versus what Tarantino does versus what Hitchcock does. And, that there's a language to filmmaking and that there's an aesthetic and that there's a sensibility. And it's really fun to watch them not only discover that stuff, but also teach me things about things that are happening now that they think are exciting. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, that's really cool. Uh, you have that to look forward to with your little ones. Yeah, yeah. They're I mean, actually both doing, they they just had Sunday, their first performances. Um, they did... Um, Hamiltons, it's called. Oh, awesome. I think because legally, I don't know if you can do Hamilton. They did something here locally and uh, they were kind of in the ensemble last week and now their cast goes up this week. So they're, um, you know, my son's going to be George Washington and my daughter's going to be uh, Peggy and George Eaker. So they're very oh, excited Oh, that's about awesome. It. Yeah. It I've was, seen Hamilton three times. I'm a huge I have I'm not, a huge Hamilton I have not seen it. Now I feel like I, oh, I need to see it because I've been listening to all these songs over so and great. over. Um, but, but yeah, it's cool to think of because they're so young still. Mm-hmm. Um, but, when they start discovering their own path and their own, you know, whether, whether or not it's film, but whatever it is, when they develop, just have their own ideas about things and it's really exciting to watch their their imaginations and their intellects grow that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm very, very grateful to have you here and, uh, thank you. Is there anywhere, I mean, I guess the next thing where you could see Larry's work is, uh, I'm excited about it. Goliath on Amazon, uh, starring Billy Bob Thornton. It's coming out. What'd you say? June 15th? I believe June 15th. And also around the same time will be, um, Condor, which is at and show that I directed the pilot in the first three episodes of, which is really good. It's a contemporization of Three Days of the Condor. Oh, so I directed the pilot and the first three episodes of that of that show, and uh, that's also coming out in June. Was that delayed or something? Wasn't it? That, uh... It had like a. I shot it a year ago, so it basically has a had a delayed launch. It just is oh, how cool. the, when they you know at and wants to put it out. Oh, great. Okay, so Condor as well. But don't watch that if it means you can't watch Goliath. <laughs> Make room for both. <laughs> Make room for both, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for thank being here. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure. 
Thanks again for listening to 10,000 No's. We realize there are tons of great podcasts out there, and we truly appreciate you sitting down with us. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so on the Apple Podcasts app for iTunes or on Spotify. If you like what you heard today, we'd love it if you took a minute to give us a five-star rating and a short review, as well as just telling your friends and family about us. We aim to give you the best free content possible, so if you have suggestions, requests, comments, anything, please email us at info at 10,000nos.com. That's info at 10000nos.com to let us know what would make your listening experience better. See you next week.